The title is Going to War. <clears throat> when you go to war against your enemies and see horses and chariots and an army greater than yours, <clears throat> do not be afraid of them, because the Lord your God, who brought you up out of Egypt, will be with you. When you are about to go into battle, the priest shall come forward and address the army. He shall say, Hear, O Israel, today you are going into battle against your enemies. Do not be faint-hearted or afraid. <clears throat> Do not be terrified or give way to panic before them. For the Lord your God is the one who goes with you to fight for you against your enemies to give you victory. <clears throat> The officers shall say to the army, Has anyone built a new house and not dedicated it? Let him go home, or he may die in battle, and someone else may dedicate it. Has anyone planted a, a vineyard and not began to enjoy it? Let him go home, or he may die in battle, and someone else enjoy it. Has anyone become pledged to a woman and not married her? Let him go home, or he may die in battle, and someone else will marry her. Then the officers shall add, Is any man afraid or faint-hearted? Let him go home, so that his brothers will not become disheartened too. When the officers have finished speaking to the army, they shall appoint commanders over it. When you march up to attack a city, make its people an offer of peace. If they accept and open their gates, all the people in it shall be subject to forced labour and shall work for you. If they refuse to make peace and they engage you in battle, lay siege to that city. When the Lord your God delivers it into your hand, put to the sword all the men in it. As for the women, the children, the livestock, and everything else in the city, you may take these as plunder for yourselves. And you may use the plunder the Lord your God gives you from your enemies. This is how you are to treat all the cities that are at a distance from you and do not belong to the nations nearby. However, excuse me, In the cities of the nations the Lord your God is giving you as an inheritance, do not leave alive anything that breathes. Completely destroy them. The Hittites, Ammonites, Canaanites, Peramites, Hivites, and Jehuzites, as the Lord your God has commanded you. Otherwise, they will teach you to follow all the detestable things they do in worshipping their gods, and you will sin against the Lord your God. When you lay siege to a city for a long time, fighting against it to capture it, do not destroy its trees by putting an axe to them, <clears throat> because you can eat their fruit. Do not cut them down. <clears throat> Are the trees of the field people that you should besiege them? However, you may cut down trees that you know are not fruit trees and use them, 
to build siege works until the city at war with you falls. Amen. Shall we pray together? Lord, would you speak to us this morning? Would there be something in these terrible passages, but yet your word that we can glean and be drawn closer to you in? And may the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable to you, my Redeemer and my Rock. In the name of Christ, amen. Here we go. Oh, Ian, I've not got my doofer. Can you give me my doofer, please? So this is week, is it week four or five week? I don't know, week four or five into Deuteronomy. We're going to do it in nine weeks. And this is part of the section from chapters 12 to 26, where Moses is unpacking uh, some of the law for this new generation about to go into the promised land. And uh, we're going to do three sections in this unpacking uh, 12 to 16 chapters. In August 96, Osa bin Laden issued his first fatwa, a declaration of war against American occupying the lands of the two holy places. However, it was 9-11 that caused the majority of the West to sit up and take notice of Islam. The hijackers were from Al-Qaeda, and reportedly these jihadi Muslims were encouraged to meditate in two chapters of the Quran, the verse of the sword, and Allah tells his followers these words, kill the idolaters wherever you find them and capture them and besiege them and sit and wait for them at every place of anguish, Quran 9.5. Now many of us would be shocked Uh, possibly to find that uh, Islam's holy book requires specific instructions like this to engage in jihad or holy war. Many of you may not. And the Quran is a vast book. It's not the word of God, but it's a vast book. Uh, And it's vague at times as well, and it's got many types of genres. Passages that condemn war as well as passages that incite war and struggle. There is expression of tolerance within the Quran and the stern pictures of unbelievers. But it could be argued as well that the same is true of the Bible. We all have our favorite verses that we get for fridge magnets or favorite verses that we put at the bottom of cards or favorite verses that just don cards that we send to people for encouragement. But there are many disturbing passages in the Bible which seems to be divinely sanctioned and divinely commanded acts of violence, such as what we have read in verses 16 to 20, the annihilation of the Canaanites. Some suggest that these passages are tantamount to ethnic cleansing or genocide. Some people suggest that. How do we respond to these troubling texts? We're being forced to look at it this morning, one of the benefits of going through various books of the Bible. How do we reconcile Father God to his compassion in Israel, even though Israel fake continually, and yet God commands them to have no compassion towards certain people groups? How can we seriously love our neighbors as we are commanded when it seems here that God ignores such commands? 
This morning, we are not going to get disclosure on this. Uh, I, am, I, am, I promise you that. <laughs> but we're forced to consider passages or terror texts, as a woman called Phyllis Tribble uh, once uh, called these terror texts. We're forced to consider them in light of God's glory and His grace. Turn your eyes upon Jesus, look full in His wonderful face, and the things of the earth will go strangely dim in the light of His glory and grace. These are difficult passages that we are looking at today, and the lens we look at them through is His glory and His grace. His ways are not our ways, and one day maybe we will figure it out. And as we look at this, we need not fear. It need not be something that shakes us to the core. But as I said, hopefully there'll be something within these passages that makes us just go, hmm, or hmm, I disagree with David. I'm going to go and do some homework. Don't just come to me the door and say I disagree with you and all that sort of stuff. Don't come to me the door. Anyway, I'm absolutely exhausted. I'll probably be sharp. So don't send me an email. No, face me in person. <laughs> um, anyway, that's where we're at. And uh, I've thoroughly enjoyed studying for this. Here we go. So where are we at in the story? Well, here's Joshua. And Joshua is about to lead this new generation, God's people, into the promised land. They're on the edge, the verge of it. Joshua knew this one. He knew the compassion of God. Why? Because he and Caleb and their families were spared. He knew God's compassion. But he also knew the anger of God because he saw his whole generation who were faithless die in the desert as a command of the Lord. So he knew the compassion of God and in the same measure, maybe, he knew the anger of God. And now at the promised land, he's faced with this decision. God has commanded, what am I to do? Who is this God that commands me? I know him as compassion, but I know him as terrifying at the same time. And we read these words, and these will virtually be the words I'll focus in on today, or my thoughts will be based around these words. In verse 16, he's to obey this command of Harem. However, the cities of the nations the Lord your God has given you as an inheritance, do not leave alive anything that breathes. Completely destroy them, the Hittites, Amorites, Canaanites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites, as the Lord your God has commanded you. Otherwise, they will teach you to follow all the detestable things they do in worshiping their gods, and you will sin against the Lord your God. And so, therefore, what did Joshua do? Okay, this, he was commanded, he had a choice, like we all have a choice to obey God's word or not, and to interpret it and figure it out in light of his glory and grace and in how we understand God. So what did Joshua do? Sing with me if you know the song. Joshua fought the battle of Jericho, Jericho, Jericho. Joshua fought the battle of Jericho, and the walls came tumbling down. Right. A nice child-friendly song. Okay, let's turn, if you would, to a book to the right, Joshua chapter 6. So it's just one book to the right if you've got your Bibles there. It's good to read through uh, to see what happened. And our kids' songs, and that song in particular, it's all about how the priests took the trumpets and they marched around, and then Joshua walked straight in, something like that. Okay, 
And then the song stops. Here is what happened. Verse 20 of chapter 6 of Joshua. When the trumpet sounded, the people shouted, and the sound of the trumpet, at the sound of the trumpet, when the people gave a loud shout, the wall collapsed. So every man charged straight in, and they took the city. They devoted the city to the Lord and destroyed with the sword every living thing in it, men and women, young and old, cattle, sheep, and donkeys. That was the city of Jericho. If you would turn with me to one page to the right as well and look at Joshua chapter 8, 26 and 28, and this is the city of Ai. We'll call it Ai. Verse 26, for Joshua did not draw back the hand and held out his javelin until he had destroyed all who lived in Ai. Verse 28, so Joshua burned Ai and made it a permanent heap of ruins, a desolate place to this day. He hung the king of Ai in a tree and left him until the evening, etc., etc. And then, let's go one, let's see, one page, two pages to the right in Joshua chapter 11. And we'll look at verse 14, and this is the city of Hazar. Joshua 11, verse 14. The Israelites carried for themselves, carried off for themselves all the plunder and livestock of these cities, but all the people they put to the sword until they completely destroyed them, not sparing anyone that breathed, which takes us back to Deuteronomy chapter 20 and verse 16. God says, uh, do not leave anything that alive breathes. Do not leave anything alive that breathes. Just pausing that thought for a second. I'll take a glass of water. So, what happened to the promise of Abraham? Where is the blessing of Abraham? What is the blessing of Abraham? Yes, but it then goes on to say, and all the people on earth will be blessed through you. I know that. I'm just being a little bit. Stay with me, Judy. Where is a blessing for the people of Jericho? Where is a place, blessing of the people of Ai? And where is a blessing of the people of Hazar? I'll lay that out there because for some people, this is really tough. And, and it's, it seems like compassionless. Whereas God shows compassion to an elderly couple who were barren and blessed them with a son. And through his lineage, the whole earth would be blessed. And he blessed the fugitive murderer, Moses. And he even blessed the Egyptians once they had let people go. Granted, their armed forces were drowned, but the people themselves were left after they obeyed the word of the Lord. And even here in Deuteronomy chapter 20, there's heaps and heaps of compassion. And it would be wrong for me just to focus on the difficult stuff without actually showing some wonderful things. And here in Deuteronomy 20, God lays down strict rules of military engagement, 10 through to 15. I'm not read it, but you'll see some of them. Offer peace. So this command to go in in chapter 20, verse 16 onwards to 20, and specific cities are not to be used willy-nilly throughout the rest of the land. It's for certain places at certain times because God lays down for his people, you need to offer peace. And, and then, you know, there's ways of, of, of controlling that peace as was the way back in the day. And then when Israel were to go to war, 
the Lord laid down, uh, in fact, the second thing was, leave the land. No scorched earth, 19 and 20. So no napalm is what happened in the, the jungles of Vietnam. God says, no, your battle is not against the land, the trees. Your battle is against the people who oppose you and oppose me. And then God doesn't just send anyone in. If you're newly married, if you've built your house and all that sort of stuff, the draft system is generous. So don't skip by those. But when it comes to the inhabitants of Canaan, no such mercy is offered. Verse 17, completely destroy the Hittites, Amorites, Canaanites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites. And this can be a stumbling block, and this can be a tension, but there's great lessons to be learned in here. And I'm going to do it in three points, and all of it is going to be up there in front of you. There is a prequel to what has just happened here. There is history. It, it, it isn't a, a smash and grab. There is a storyline, just as an actor coming on the stage, that actor will have in their mind where they've came from, what their background is. It's the same as we face this story here in Scripture. And there is a history between God and Israel, and there's a history between God and the Canaanites. When God called Abraham to leave Ur, and he sent him into Canaan, he didn't settle there. And you read in Genesis chapter 15 uh, these words. The angel of the Lord, that's oh, 16, that's why. Yeah, so. I am the Lord who brought you out of art to the Chaldeans to give you this land to take possession of it. The Lord says, This is your land. I brought you out. This will be your land. And then the Lord went on to say this in verse 13. Know for certain that your descendants will be strangers in a country not of their own. And they will be enslaved and ill-treated for 400 years. We know that story. but It's the backstory to Moses and to the giving of the law and the establishment of Israel as a nation state. But I will punish the nation they serve as slaves, the plagues. And afterwards they will come out with great possessions and we know that about Israel. You, whoever, will go to your fathers in peace and will be buried in a good old age. And in the fourth generation, your descendants will come back here for the sin of the Amorites has not reached its full measure. Very important words, those. The Amorites are just like the English. Forgive me if you're English, but stay with me. <laughs> you know, so, sorry, man. You know, people talk about the war. They'll say that England fought the Germans when in fact it was Great Britain and the Commonwealth that fought the Germans and, and, and the Axis of Evil, whatever they call them. This is kind of what's going on here. The Amorites were the dominant force there, but there was Canaanites and Hibites and Perizzites and Jebusites. So that's where the Amorites get all the attention back there when the Lord is giving his covenant or making his covenant to, uh, to Abraham and talking about the blessing. God says, the sins of the Amorites have not reached their full uh, measure yet. God has given them 400 years, the Amorites. 400 years to work on their character for better or for worse because God gives us a choice. We are not robots. We choose free will. We either choose Jesus as Lord as opposed to lunatic and liar. And it's based on fact, 
and it's based on experience and knowledge and in the heart. And it's the same with the Amorites. They chose the life and the path that they were on. And the Lord says it will take 400 years if they go down that route for their sins to spill over the cup, as it were. And if God were being merciful uh, to the Amorites, it was expense of his chosen people. It's going to take them 400 years and I'm going to take your people away for 400 years. The 12 tribes will go from Canaan where there'll be a famine into Egypt because Joseph is there and he knows how to manage the land. And you're just 12 tribes, 12 brothers with families and, and all sorts of livestock. But I will bring you out through hardship as a nation. And it's undoubtedly true that the identity of Israel were formed in misery. So the Amorites had a chance to repent and to be saved, as the Assyrians did with Nineveh when Jonah went to them. Jonah, you know the story, but they repented. A whole city, a whole people group repented at the word of the Lord. And yet the Amorites did not. It was their choice. Because God is not quick-tempered. He is not a bully who suddenly just flares up. He's more like a compassionate gardener who hopes that the elements will produce the right kind of fruit. The environment will produce life and growth and abundance. But if it doesn't, as a gardener, he'll go in and prune and shape. As we know from the parable of the fig tree, where Jesus explains this, and he says, if it bears fruit next year, fine. But if not, as the gardener, I'm going to get in and do something about it. I'm going to cut it down. God's patience is long, but at the end, God will act. God is patient with us, but in the end, he will bring action and his desire that we are fruitful people, a fruitful church, a beautiful spotless bride is what he will bring about. Mostly, I would think, through hardship, but his faithfulness and compassion also. Pruning and allowing the environment to shape us. But where we get off track, pruning and pruning and pruning. So the Amorites, it seems, continually struggled or journeyed in their sin until judgment finally came, and that was in the Lord's time. 400 years, Abraham. After 400 years, when your people go into this nation, those who are left have got a choice in the land. Will they seek me and find me when they seek me with all of their heart? Or will they go about their detestable ways that are affront to me? Romans chapter 3 and verse 3 says this, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We know that it trips off the tongue very easily. But judgment is coming. The judgment day is promised in Scripture. And until then, we have a chance today to repent and to believe. God in His love and His mercy and in His patience waits. Withholding judgment, giving us the chance to believe and to be reconciled to Him. Because He is patient, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. So perhaps God's extreme patience is more to the point 
in this passage than God's extreme judgment. I think these passages that we've looked at speaks of God's justice as well. He is just. You know, that we, we don't like injustice. If you think back to uh, King David and when the prophet Nathan came to him and told him a story of a rich and a poor man. The rich man had an incredible amount of livestock and the poor man had a young lamb that he loved dearly. Uh, the lamb would eat in, in his home with his family, would get the scraps from the table and would drink even from the cup of the master, would sleep in the house. And then a stranger came to the land to visit the rich man and the rich man, who had all that he needed, decided that he would not spend his wealth on, to honor his guest but then took the lamb of the poor man, prepared it, sacrificed it, and gave it to this visitor. And when David heard this, he was incensed because we hate injustice. He was fuming. As surely as the Lord lives, the man who did this must die, says King David. He must pay for that lamb four times over because he did such a thing and had no pity. And Nathan, the prophet, pointed at him and says, the man is you because you have taken a woman as your wife that did not belong to you. And you know the story of Bathsheba and her husband, David, when he was meant to go to war, was not at war. He was where he was not meant to be. And he was infatuated with Bathsheba sent her husband off to the front line. One of his mighty men sent him to the front line to die to then take Bathsheba as his wife. And Nathan says, this is wrong. This is not justice. This is injustice. And the Lord has seen it. We feel anger. We feel disgust when we read things in the news, when we, we, we listen to things where there is great injustice, where those who are rich and powerful are in, the, the establishment get away with it at the expense of the poor and the people that they commit these crimes against. We desire perpetrators to be held to account and we desire just punishment to come, whatever that may be. Because without judgment and accountability for how individuals and, and more than that, how nations exist and act, if there's no moral framework, the world will be in anarchy. We need a moral framework. And in the West, although it's, it's, it's crumbling away, and especially in our nation, Scotland, who have replaced all of the law and the Ten Commandments and the, 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 the laws of uh, Judeo-Christian faith, they've, they've disbanded them and discarded them. They've replaced it with a, a stack of cards. It's my own personal judgment. And weirdly, interestingly, we also read about why it was just for the Lord to come against uh, the, the Levites. In fact, I'm going to read another little bit from Deuteronomy 12, 29 to 31. It reads this. The Lord your God will cut off before you the nation you're about to invade and dispossess. But when you have driven them out and settled in the land, and after they have been destroyed before you, be careful not to be ensnared and inquiring about their gods. Don't be attracted to their form of worship. 
Don't say, how do these nations serve their gods? We will do the same. You must not worship the Lord your God in their way because in worshiping their gods, they do all, the, all sorts of detestable things the Lord hates. They even burn their sons and daughters in the fire as sacrifices to their gods. And the Lord says, as Nathan says to David, no, you'll be held account for that. You must pay the price for what you're doing. But interestingly, a little bit later on, uh, a little bit earlier, should I say, Leviticus chapter, I thought this was one, weirdly wonderful when I read it. Leviticus 18, 24, 25, and I'll just read it quickly. It says this, do not, let me just make sure I've got it right, do not defile yourself in any of these ways because this is how the nations that I am going to drive out before you have became defiled. Don't copy their way of worship. Don't copy their way of life. That's why I'm, I'm chipping them out because they're defiled. Even the land was defiled, so I punished it for its sin. And the land vomited out its inhabitants. The Canaanites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Jebusites, the Hittites, the way in which they lived, man, woman, and child, was so obnoxious that the land vomited it out. It could stand it no more. So God is just, I believe, in doing this. And the third point I want to just focus on briefly is that God is sovereign. By the time of the destruction, Canaanite culture was undoubtedly nasty. It was cruel. It was famous for it. Embracing ritual prostitution, embracing child sacrifice. And according uh, to Deuteronomy chapter 20, in verse 18, if God's people settled with them, they would teach God's people to follow all these detestable things. And that would be a sin against the Lord. Therefore, the Canaanites are to be destroyed. God, I think, had morally sufficient reason, reason for his, his judgment upon the Canaanites. And Israel was merely an instrument of his justice just as later on, nations like Assyria and nations like Babylon would be instruments of God's justice against God's people because of their sinfulness. But why did God take the lives of the children? Deuteronomy 7, 3 to 4. Do not intermarry with them, God says to his people. Do not give your daughters to their sons or take their daughters for your sons. For they will turn their children away from following me to serve other gods and the Lord's anger will burn against you and will quickly destroy you. God protects his relationship with his people. And God is actually even saying here that the children will even encourage you into false worship and it will be a sin against me. So God taught Israel that any assimilation to pagan idolatry was intolerable. It was his way of preserving Israel's spiritual health and Israel's spiritual poverty, eh, 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 prosperity, and Israel's future. And in his sovereign knowledge, I can only assume that God knew that if these Canaanite children were allowed to live, they would spell, they would mean the undoing of Israel. It's the only thing I can think of in this part. 
So it may be possible that killing the Canaanite children not only served to prevent assimilation to Canaanite identity, but also served as a shattering, tangible illustration of Israel being set exclusively apart for the Lord. And if you believe that God's grace is extended to those who die in infancy and, and childhood, then maybe, just maybe, the Canaanite children were actually saved in this act. I don't know if I'm at that point yet but it's certainly a point worth considering. I want to leave us with two verses that we may be familiar with. But I would say this, we dare not make the same mistake as the Amorites and spurn God's grace. Jesus says, Make every effort to enter through the narrow door because many, I tell you, will try to enter and will not be able to enter. Once the owner of the house gets up and closes the door, you will stand outside knocking and pleading, Sir, open the door for us. But he will answer, I do not know you or where you come from. And then you will say, We ate and drank with you and you taught us in the streets. But he will reply, I don't know you or where you come from. Away from me, all you evildoers. Lord have mercy. And as was the case in Abraham's day, we know that God's judgment is coming. And unlike Abraham, we don't have a timeline to give us an idea of when that will be. We've not been told 400 years. All we know is that God's judgment has not yet fallen, which means that God is still patient and the sins of the nations have not reached a full measure. Lord have mercy. So I would encourage us with these somber, and, and I, I make no apology, they are somber, difficult passages, but we must, it is God's word, Make good use of God's favor. Make God use of, uh, good use of God's blessing. If we must, we must consider whether Jesus was Lord, lunatic, or liar. And seek and find him when you seek and find him. You will find him with all of your heart. When you seek him with all of your heart, you'll find him. Jesus, of whom it was written, for he said, in the time of my favor I heard you. And in the day of salvation, I helped you. I tell you, now is the time of God's favor. Now is the time of God's salvation. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Shall we pray together? Shall we be in silence and then pray? Thank you, Father, for your word. We know that our ways are not yours, but that you are making us into the image of your Son. Would you increase our knowledge and our understanding, but also, Father, and we've spoke about it and Ken spoke about it this morning, would we trust you even when we don't understand, even when we're pained by what we read. Help us to trust you in the past, you spoke through our fathers many times and in various ways. 
But in these days you have spoken to us through your Son, whom you have appointed heir of all things and through whom all the whole universe was made. And we know that you are good and your love endures forever. And we know that you are the sovereign I am. Father, we know that you will be exalted among the nations. You will be exalted in the earth. And I pray that us in a limited capacity to chew over these scriptures, may we trust you, honor you. Help us, Lord, because we like to be at the center of our life. We, we like to make all our own choices. But I pray that your will would be done and your kingdom would come in our lives. And that we would trust you all the more. There is none like you. Our Father. We pray in your Son's name and by your Spirit. Amen. Amen.